Section 14 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. New South Wales, 1851-1860 1. Effects of Gold Discovery For some years after 1851, the colony of New South Wales passed through a severe ordeal. The separation of Port Phillip had reduced her population by one-fourth and decreased her wealth by fully a third the discoveries of gold at ballarat and bendigo had deprived her of many of her most desirable colonists but the resources of the colony were too vast to allow of more than a merely temporary check and after a year or two her progress was steady and marked the gloomy anticipations with which the gold discoveries had been regarded by the squatters and employers of labor were by no means realized for though men were for a time scarce and wages exceedingly high yet when the real nature of a gold digger's life and the meagerness of the average earnings became apparent the great majority of the miners returned to their ordinary employments and the colony resumed its former career of steady progress though with this difference that the population was greater and business consequently brisker than it had ever been before fortune however had given to victoria so great an impetus in eighteen fifty one that the firm prosperity of new south wales was completely lost sight of in the brilliant success of its younger neighbour the yield of gold in new south wales was never great as compared with that of victoria for with the exception of eighteen fifty two no year produced more than two million pounds worth but the older colony learnt more and more to utilize its immense area in the growth of wool an industry which yielded greater and more permanent wealth than has ever been gained from gold mining two governor denison governor fitzroy who had been appointed in eighteen forty seven remained eight years in office and thus was present during the events which made so great a change in the prospects of the colonies in 1855, he returned to England, and his place was taken by Sir William Denison, who had previously been governor of Tasmania. In 1854, great excitement had been caused in Sydney by the outbreak of the Crimean War, and the people, in their fear lest they might suddenly receive an unwelcome visit from Russian cruisers, hastened to complete a system of fortifications for the harbour. The new governor who had in youth been trained as an officer of the royal engineers in england took a warm interest in the operations he built a small fortress on an islet in the middle of the harbour and placed batteries of guns at suitable spots along the shores the advance of the science of warfare in recent times has left these little fortifications but sorry defences against modern ironclads but they have since been replaced by some of those improvements in defense which have accompanied the invention of new methods of attack. 3. Constitutional Changes 
the constitutions which had been framed for the colonies by the imperial parliament in eighteen fifty were not expected to be more than temporary the british government had wisely determined to allow each of the colonies to frame for itself the constitution which it deemed most suitable to its requirements and had instructed the legislative councils which were elected in eighteen fifty one to report as to the wishes of their respective colonies in sydney the council entrusted the framing of the new constitution to a committee which decided to adopt the english system of government by two houses the one to represent the people as a whole the other to watch over the interests of those who by their superior wealth might be supposed to have more than an ordinary stake in the welfare of the country it was very quickly arranged that the popular house should consist of not less than fifty-four members to be elected by men who paid a small rental or possessed property of a certain annual value but with regard to the nature of the upper house it was much more difficult to come to a decision wentworth proposed that the queen should establish a colonial peerage to form a small house of lords holding their seats by hereditary right but this idea raised so great an outcry that he made haste to abandon it several of the committee were in favor of the scheme afterwards adopted in victoria of making the upper house elective while limiting the choice of members to those who possessed at least five thousand pounds worth of real property after much discussion however it was decided to give to the governor the power of nominating the members of this chamber which was to consist of not less than twenty-one persons the legislative council adopted this scheme and sent it to england for the assent of the queen they also requested that their constitution might be still further assimilated to that of great britain by the introduction of responsible government so that the ministers who controlled the affairs of the colony should be no longer officials appointed or dismissed by the governor and secretary of state but should in future be chosen by the parliament to advise the governor on all matters of public interest and should be liable to dismissal from office so soon as the parliament lost confidence in their ability or prudence the british government at once gave its assent to this constitution which was accordingly inaugurated in eighteen fifty six and from that date the political management of new south wales has been an imitation of that of the british empire in eighteen fifty eight two small modifications were introduced the lower house was increased in numbers to sixty-eight members and the privilege of voting for it was extended to every male person over twenty-one years of age who had dwelt not less than six months in the colony four floods and droughts from the very commencement of its existence new south wales has been subject to the two extremes of heavy floods and dreary periods of drought the mountains are so near to the coast that the rivers have but short courses and the descent is so steep that during rainy seasons the rush of waters deluges the plains near the sea causing floods of fatal suddenness at the same time the waters are carried off so rapidly that there are no supplies of moisture left to serve 
for those seasons in which but little rain falls the districts along the banks of the hunter hawkesbury and shoalhaven rivers have been especially liable to destructive inundations and from time to time the people of sydney have been obliged to send up lifeboats for the purpose of releasing the unfortunate settlers from the roofs and chimneys of their houses where they have been forced to seek refuge from the rising waters the murrumbidgee also used occasionally to spread out into a great sea carrying off houses and crops cattle and oftentimes the people themselves in eighteen fifty two a flood of this description completely destroyed the town of gundagai and no less than eighty persons perished either from drowning or from being exposed to the storm as they clung to the branches of trees five the dunbar a great gloom was cast over the colony in eighteen fifty seven by the loss of a fine ship within seven miles of the centre of sydney the dunbar sailed from plymouth in that year with about a hundred and twenty people on board many of them well-known colonists who had visited england and were now on their way homewards as the vessel approached the coast a heavy gale came down from the northeast and ere they could reach the entrance to port jackson night had closed around them in the deep and stormy gloom they beat to and fro for some time but at length the captain thought it safer to make for sydney heads than to toss about on so wild a sea he brought the vessel close in to the shore in order to search for the entrance and when against the stormy sky he perceived a break in the black cliffs he steered for the opening this however was not the entrance but only a hollow in the cliffs called by the sydney people the gap the vessel was standing straight in for the rocks when a mass of boiling surf was observed in the place where they thought the opening was and ere she could be put about she crashed violently upon the foot of a cliff that frowned ninety feet above there was a shriek and then the surf rolled back the fragments and the drowning men at daybreak the word was given that a ship had been wrecked at the gap and during the day thousands of people poured forth from sydney to view the scene of the disaster on the following morning it was discovered that there was a solitary survivor who having been washed into a hollow in the face of the rock lay concealed in his place of refuge throughout that dreadful night and all the succeeding day a young man was found who volunteered to let himself down by a rope and rescue the half-dead seamen to prevent the repetition of so sad an occurrence lighthouses were erected for the guidance of ship captains entering the harbour in eighteen fifty two the people of sydney had the satisfaction of inaugurating the first australian university a structure whose noble front magnificent halls and splendid appointments for the furtherance of science will always do credit to the liberality and high aspirations of the colony in eighteen fifty seven the australian museum was opened and formed the nucleus of the present excellent collection of specimens during this period several newspapers sprang into existence railways began to stretch out from the metropolis and lines of telegraph united sydney with the leading cities of the other colonies 
In August 1853, the first mail steamer from England, named the Chusan, arrived in Port Jackson, and helped to make the settlers of Australia feel less exiled, as they now could have regular news of their friends and of European events little more than two months old. End of section 14. Recording by Linda Johnson.